And I'm Jewish Dave. And this is a crossover, insert the cool music here, between uh, Piecing It Together and Bird Road. So, Dave, we're going to take a little uh, welcome respite during these trying times in our nation's political discourse and uh, the news and the larger macro trends of what's driving all the news cycles forward and uh, what's, you know, poisoning our brains and all the mm-hmm. terrible shit that's going out there. Instead, we're going to focus in, uh, in, on something else. Well, what exactly yes. is this Bird Road Piecing It Together crossover episode going to be about today, Dave? And this is a uh, Just Them Boys episode, just the, just uh, me and you. Um, since just we're listening, Boys. Since some of you are Piecing It Together fans, well, I'll call you David Rosen instead of Jewish Dave. Um, <laughs> your nom de plume, your nom de pod. What are we talking about today, Dave? Well, you can call me Jewish Dave if you'd like, but uh, but oh, yeah, well. we're going to talk about this movie, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, from Bill and Turner Ross, which is this very unique, not documentary, although it is presented as if it's a documentary, that kind of centers in on this bar that is supposedly in Las Vegas, although it was really shot in New Orleans, and uh, it is... It's the closing day of this bar, and it's just kind of a cinema verite, kind of fly on the wall look at this last day of this bar before it closes. And you just kind of get the the feeling of all these people who frequent the bar and who they are, what their lives are, how they connect with each other. And you get little bits and pieces, and it all just kind of puts together in a very unique, different kind of experience of a movie. Yeah, so maybe what we'll do, Dave, instead of... Uh the typical format that your your listeners are used to hearing um and uh i I guess there's probably a lot of crossover between our listeners probably Uh, instead of just a straightforward um puzzle pieces about like how the movie is is uh influenced or inspired let's talk a little bit about it because um i had talked on social media i had actually made a few posts on social media about this movie on twitter and Mm. uh, gotten some attention to some people that were also i guess fellow fans of specifically one of the actors in the movie and, and also the movie itself broadly and uh, New mm-hmm. Orleans, I guess New Orleans film Twitter or New Orleans yeah. uh, stage Twitter uh, caught, caught a hold of, of it. And, um, you know, it was cool. It was, uh, it was uh, got a lot of uh, interesting new followers out of that. And uh, yeah. maybe what we can do is talk a little bit about this movie because one of the things that I had said was that there was a lot that I wanted to unpack about this movie I thought was fascinating and touching. And it, it was, uh, for me, a very late entry as one of my favorite films of last year. I didn't mm. watch it until technically, I guess, 2021, because I watched it like, on, I don't know, like a week ago or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the best thing to do is to just kind of give a quick synopsis of what happens in this movie. It's not a lot. It's a day. In, it's a literal day in a life. Mm. And it is an actual literal day in the life. This was shot over the course of 18 hours, not counting the exteriors that were captured in Las Vegas. And um, I guess some of the exteriors that involved sort of like a B cast of younger delinquents that were shot outside of the bar. Um, mm-hmm. These guys shot this movie, and I don't want to get too into the text, technical stuff of it, although this is one of those movies where you watch it and you kind of get really inspired because you read about how these guys did it and you're like, oh man, that's all it takes to do a really, really good movie. And, right. um, you know, so they mic'd up this bar, which is called the Roaring Twenties outside of sort of the outer areas of uh, New Orleans that mm. happened to happens to look like a lot of the sort of anonymous, you know, I'm thinking of places like streets in in Las Vegas, like 
Eastern and like Maryland Parkway and Industrial yeah. and Decatur and places like that. It looks just like one of these sort of like middle distance off strip streets in in Vegas. Yeah. And um, they might. And Vegas this- is such an interesting place to like to set that because like I don't think most people that are going to go into this movie understand that that's even part of Vegas. That there is like this world of these little small bars and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you you say that, and I think that when people think of Las Vegas, what they think of is two different things, right? I think that there's the very, very basic understanding of Las Vegas as this like tourist destination with this ever evolving, gaudy monstrosity of a strip, and maybe mm-hmm. if you have like a little bit of a deeper understanding or no knowledge or like geographical footprint, you know that there's also the downtown area, which is in its own way equally gaudy and maybe not as updated, you know, and not as like slick, like uh, the Vegas strip today doesn't resemble Vegas strip from 20 years ago. The Vegas right. strip from 20 years ago doesn't resemble the Vegas strip from 1980. Right. Mm. It's, it's this ever evolving monster, right? There's that, which is like a super basic bitch understanding of Las Vegas. And then if you have like a little bit more nuanced understanding of Las Vegas as a city, you probably know, the outer ring of Vegas, which is like the developing area, which is where you live, like Summerlin mm-hmm. and Spanish Trails and Green Valley, I suppose, and all those kind of places that have yeah. popped up and gone from being a city of like 300,000 to a city of like 2 million in, very quickly right. in a matter of no time. When you and I were kids in college, there was a period where 40,000 people were moving to Las Vegas every month. Every month, yeah. 40,000 people were moving. And I mean, I, I I I segue to like our own history because like I think this movie why maybe it resonated for both of us is it's very resonant of the kind of places that we spent time yeah. in in our youth like talk about that yeah I mean when, when I first heard about this movie which was months ago actually the first thing I thought of is if this ends up being something you know worth talking about Q has to be the guest on the piecing it together episode if we end up doing one because yeah this is the kind of place that we would have spent like four or five nights a week and maybe I'm being conservative by saying that it was probably a lot more than that during our uh, 20s and uh into when when did you move away how old or I was 26 you? when I moved away okay 26. so yeah so yeah, that was five years of this. So you and I were hanging out pretty solid from age, like for me, it was yeah. like from age 20, 20 or 21 to yeah. 20, age 26, pretty much yeah. every night, every night Yeah, to almost. the dismay of many girlfriends and many <laughs> other, other friends and people who, uh, you know, family members who demanded our, our, our time and, um. I don't know how anyone put up with that, like whether it was girlfriends or family members everybody, or anything, like everybody in our lives came second to us <laughs> <laughs> and not in a healthy, good way, not in yeah. a like, you know, I'll be there for you, Chandler and Joey kind of way, but in a really dark, yeah. bad way. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> wait, was I'll be there for you? Was that the friends song or no? Yeah, that was Fred. That wasn't some other song. Okay, all right. There you yeah, go. Yeah, that was Fred. So, yeah, and it's funny because you, you and I were text chatting about like trying to nail down what this bar would be. I listened to some interviews with the directors of this movie, and I want to get into sort of like the more deeper shit that I want to unpack out of this movie because I do find it to be um, a, a great telling of like a broken social compact in this country like a a, a very unique 
prism of how how capitalism has failed this country, how neoliberalism has filled this country that the the not the not like a big 10,000 foot view of it but more like a really focused in tight look at the effects like just right. in, in one in one little space and th- because this bar that is in the midst of closing that's about to go out of business and is sort of the um the narrative drive of this movie it's in for the people for the denizens of, of people that are there like it's it's replaced what used to be community right, right. like there there used to be in a, a america of a bygone era a lot of these people like some of the characters that maybe you can talk about um are are veterans right some of them fought in foreign wars some uh some of them served others were like you know, just if you infer and none, none of the dialogue and none of the storytelling is too on the nose about this. So you're never able to fully understand exactly. You're never given a full contextual understanding of who all these people are. All you get is sure. like, you know, nibbles here and there of, of what their background is. But generally, you understand each of these people to be the kind of person who their contributions to society in a bygone era would have been the kind of thing that would not that would have resulted in them not whiling their hours away in a bar for lack of any anywhere else to go hanging on to the very bottom rungs of society. Right. Yeah. And it's funny that like right now, you know, social media is of course the thing that, you know, accelerates that whole phenomenon to where, where it's supposed to be connecting everybody, but it, it ends up turning everybody into kind of like these islands where they don't really have anything. And so these people had this spot where it was yeah. like their, they're a little bit of a real community. And I always felt, you know, cause we did go to places like this a lot in, in Vegas. And that's what I wanted to like kind of talk about first before we got into that is a little bit more of a superficial conversation you and I were having about like, okay, what is the actual spot that this would be based on in Vegas? Yeah. Um, and, and even at our, and you were never down and out, but I sure was like, you always had like, you know, pretty solid support. I was a little more of a, of a phantasm in the wind. <laughs> like you could literally find me on the streets in Vegas at, at any at, at given times. But it like, I still always felt because we were young, we had all of our teeth. Like we were in, you know, in good shape. We mm-hmm. had enough money for meals. We had enough, we had roofs over our heads. Like yeah. I always felt like we, I'd be interested to hear if you think this too. I always felt like in in these when we would go hang out at these places, sometimes I felt like a bit of an intruder and a tourist. Like mm. I like I was intruding in a place that I probably shouldn't be. And while you and I thought it was cute or funny or just maybe kitsch to be in right. these places, like there were people there that did not find irony in their in their status there. And that's yeah. who this movie focuses on is those people. I always felt I, maybe it wasn't until later when I got a little bit more perspective or something like that, but I, I kind of felt like an asshole being in these places. And, and this is the kind of place where, like, if you don't belong there, like, you shouldn't probably be there. You're kind of an asshole to go there and gawk at these people that are in, you know, varying stages of their lives, but none of them good. None of them are in yeah. a great place in their life. Right, right. And, yeah, I, I think, like, that ironic detachment, like, was pretty heavy for us at the time yeah yeah that's true and yeah i don't think that i really thought about it like when we were just 
going out, getting drunk from bar to bar to bar and like not really thinking about whether or not we belonged in the places we were going. It was more just about what are we going to get up to tonight and what are we going to see? And, you know, are we going to meet people? Like what's going to happen? And, and that, that's another thing, like I, for us, it's kind of, especially a little bit weird because a lot of times we just be in the corner, just laughing at our own dumb shit and not really connecting with other people. But yeah. then there would, there would be those random nights where we totally did. And we would yeah. just, we, we'd meet a bunch of people and end up in, in a whole new little crowd and just all kinds of stuff like that happening. Yeah, th- th- that's funny. And that you say that because I was thinking about that as I was watching this movie about like the different dynamics and how they would play out on different nights and how unpredictable Las Vegas is as you know let, let me let me pose this to you right now um this was something that I had sort of noted here uh on my on my run sheet and I was going to wait until a little bit later to ask you this but like has a movie nailed Vegas yet because this movie doesn't this movie does right. a great we I think you and I really love and appreciate the fact that they set it in Vegas but as we said at the outset of the movie uh, I'm sorry, at the outset of this episode, it's not actually set in Vegas. And there, if right. you are from Vegas and if you have this very specific, I, I guess, perspective that you and I have, you, you know, it's very obvious and you kind of have to suspend your disbelief. It's frustrating, too, for, for people like us. Yeah. And you know what's funny is I, I read about it and you know what the deciding factor was for these guys in terms hmm. of like being being able to actually scout a location? Because they scouted locations in Vegas. Okay. And um, the problem was with their budget in Vegas, this proposition of shutting down a bar and filming in it for 24 hours is become so much more expensive because of the gambling revenue, because of the, the, mm. the table games, the table game or not the table games, the video blackjack the, or the right. video poker, the video poker. If you were to shut down, which they did, this bar Roaring Twenties in, in New Orleans, it would only cost, I don't know, whatever, a couple thousand bucks, because all you have to do is pay the bar for what business they're losing for that period of time to do that in Vegas is exponentially more because mm-hmm. along with all the liquor sales, people are pump- pumping $20 bills, hundred dollar bills into these, um, into the machines and the creators, the Ross brothers, I think is what, what their names are. Yeah. Ross brothers. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I, I heard a, a podcast where they were talking about how that was a deal breaker for them. They weren't able to secure any of the places that they actually wanted in Vegas because the asking price was so high. That makes um, so much sense too. And, yeah. and yeah. And I think that that's also like a thing like Gina with her photography, like if she wanted to like shoot at a, at a place, like a lot of the times you get met with, you know, a big no, because there's just too much corporate liability and bullshit. down and yeah. And yeah. so much of that, like it's, it's a strange town for, for film and that kind of related stuff. So like has a movie, nailed vegas yet in your opinion like have you seen a movie that gets like uh, what i was saying before about those two understandings of vegas like everybody the commercial the hangover the broader mainstream understanding of las vegas as this crazy nightlife place oh my god you wake in wake up in bed with a goat or something and then like (laughs) the, the, the the wild and crazy todd phillips shit or the more kind of like I guess, Tony Shea understanding of like, oh, well, this is a city on the rise and there's actually a growing population and uh, infrastructure shit. And then in the middle, like almost like a a, a donut, like a donut in the middle of a small donut and a big donut, right? Mm -hmm. There's this parameter of streets, maybe like from Paradise to Eastern on the east side, 
And then from like industrial out to rainbow or Decatur on the West Mm -hmm. side of unchangingness that if Mm. you drive down those streets for the most part, if you drive down that whole, anywhere through those, those sectors of Las Vegas, which is like a big grid, basically um, it's unchanged. And you feel like you could walk into any one of those little bars that look like the roaring twenties or feel like the roaring twenties have the same musty smell that it had 25 years ago, 30 years ago, see a lot of the same faces that were there 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I, I think of that. I don't think of your home. You're like, I don't know how old is, is where you live like 15 years old. Maybe I don't know. Whatever. Right. Right. Like, like I don't think of you where you live as like the real Las Vegas. You probably don't either. Um, no. I don't think of, I don't think of like, I don't know the, the win hotel as the real Las Vegas. I don't even really think of the Bellagio as the real Las Vegas. I think no. of those, that middle ground, that middle area, the middle distance of like yeah. Decatur, Valley View, Eastern, Paradise, you know, um, I'm trying to think Spencer, like all these kind of like, uh, and to a lot of the people who don't live in Vegas, you're hearing me just spout off these like random street names. And what I'm trying to, to get across is like our old stomping grounds. Right. That mirror, what was seen in Bloody, bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. And to, to that extent, I'm asking you, like, have you seen a movie yet? Or even maybe TV that has nailed that because I feel like that's still mysterious, unexplored, and t- to me maybe because we lived through it, very fascinating um, slice of Americana. That's like this weird, uh, you know, very unique. It's it's not like anything else in in the rest of the country. Well, and, and it's interesting you you put it that way because I think part of the reason why it hasn't been captured is because it is kind of anonymous in a way like it it is kind of you just wouldn't know that that is what vegas is if you weren't someone who you know spent their 20s here uh you know or or any kind of time you know i guess some people are in their 30s and 40s and beyond still going to those places but uh yeah i mean if you didn't spend your time in those kinds of places you probably wouldn't realize that that is what what big huge chunks of vegas is and i think i think even for a lot of people who do live here probably still only really think of either the strip or the big uh you know summerlin and green valley type suburbs so let's talk about this movie a little bit right Mm -hmm. um itself as opposed to the context around it which i find look the context is what landed it the fact that it's like what landed it on my radar that it's supposed to be set at um, as it was explained in another one of your episodes uh, at a Dino's kind of place, which you and I kind of agree is not exactly the sure. correct thing. It's it's if you're from Vegas and I know we have a lot of listeners from Vegas, uh, you know, Dino's is sort of a, a like you talked about ironic detachment before this. There's no mm-hmm. ironic detachment in this place. This is a right. place where the the despair or the circumstance, as it were, is is what it is. It's there. It's not pretending to be a dive bar i thought of something interesting dave our bar favorite bar you and i what what is it you know what it is right well i mean it depends on the the there's only one no but there's come on there's only one i mean mooses is the the no 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 so you're talking double down or what double down yes okay okay so the double down is a place where amongst the you know millennial or gen x crowd like me and you probably would be considered like the most authentic dive bar in i don't know the country maybe it's 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 up there it's it's great it's a it's a great place we we still go there as graying aging old men that we are now like we'll still put on leather jackets and go there 
And uh, <laughs> it's just like the saddest shit in the world, but we do it. And um, so, but think about something. If you and I were like 21 right now, in the year of our Lord, 2021 right now, mm-hmm. and we walked into Double Down for the first time, I think we would think that it was lame and that it was try hard and that it was like, it was, it was, it was trying it was trying to be something that it's it's not that it was that mm. double down is trying i know this is heresy and sacrilege that i'm saying yeah. right now i see it in your face this is crazy I, I, this is crazy but think <laughs> of us our brains poisoned as i've said that they are completely rotted with the modern context of what it is to be living in the year 2021 well, it's, yeah it's also hard for me to imagine being 21 right now but continue though (laughs) walking into that place and just being like oh the dive of this dive bar is painted on the walls it's all just painted on the walls it's just like Mm -hmm. you could turn this into something else in in two seconds and there would just be a different clientele you walk out and 20 feet away from you there's the hard rock casino which you know has 500 dollars a hand blackjack tables yeah I mean, and those people permeate. They find their way over to the Double Down. They're wearing, I don't know what like the expensive clothing would be, like back in the day, Armani. I don't know what the fuck people wear now. Uh, Balenciaga, I don't know. But like, <laughs> they're like, they'll come over and they'll be there. They'll be gawking too and looking around like, oh, look at that. The word fuck is written on the wall. They don't even right. care. You know, and it's like, okay, that's one thing. That's one thing. But this place, this Roaring Twenties and the archetype that it represents that you and I used to attend are something different. And I kind of want to talk about, I thought maybe a good entryway into the movie would be like the people that you meet there. And uh, I, I, on that same podcast I was talking about, I listened to the directors talk about the way that they cast this movie. And there's really only like a handful of trained actors. Mm. And a lot of them are more like uh, just kind of playing themselves. And I thought maybe you might know a little bit more about that. Maybe you could talk about like who who are some of the people that we're meeting in this movie in the Roaring Twenties? Well, before we get into that, I, I do want to just say that like the thing you were just talking about, I think really speaks to 2021 and authenticity and how it just doesn't really exist anymore. So that it's but an that's idea. Part- it's a yeah. marketing slogan. Is it like it's not when you talk about authenticity, you're not talking about actual things that are authentic. You're talking yeah. about the 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 manufacturing of authenticity. You're not mm-hmm. talking about authenticness, like an actual authenticness. You're talking about like very lifelike simulacrums. You're talking right. about things that really pass for being authentic and yeah. aren't and aren't. You're talking about wood grain. You're talking about things that are that are made to look like a thing that they're not. Yeah. Well, going to the some of the characters, though, and I, I have to apologize to people listening at home. It's a little hard to get like character names after the fact, like online. Like there's really only four uh, cast members listed on IMDb and you right. know stuff like that. So I kind of got to go by uh, characteristics and describing a lot of these people. But I mean, I think the the one that has kind of dominated the conversation because he's kind of the heart of the film is Michael Martin, but it, it, everybody's kind of has their own name as far as characters. So he's Michael, yeah, laying but... out my claim right now. I said it earlier in the, in the show, Michael Martin for Dave. I don't know what the qualifications are. Maybe you can help me understand the difference between whether Michael Martin, uh, a mainstay in the new mm-hmm. Orleans, um, film and acting world, uh, whose face you would probably very unique face you would probably recognize from things like um get, he had a bit role in Get Hard. He stood out in uh, Preacher. 
He was on the TV show Breakout Kings, uh, mostly known from his stage work. This guy deserves an Oscar. I started the campaign on Twitter a couple of days ago. It got interrupted by the insurrection in Washington, D.C., like three hours later. Um, But it got a little bit of heat. If you're out there, if you're on Twitter, if you're a film person, take a look at my, I'm going to pin that tweet, um, go in there and, uh, and retweet it. Come on, add your voice name to the voice. This guy deserves an Academy award and I'm not being, um, hyperbolic with that. I don't know if uh, what I was going to ask you is whether he would qualify as a, um, a lead or like supporting actor. I guess he would probably have to be a supporting actor based on what the lines or the number of scenes he's in or whatever. But yeah, there's so much about this movie that makes it like impossible to tell like what would qualify as what, like even if it qualifies as a narrative or not, I mean, which of course it is, it's not a documentary. Me and Jason Harris have argued about this and you know, it's definitely not a documentary, but it's still, it just rides such a strange line and it's so hard to class by any of this but but to your point though yeah i mean the fact that something we we touched on earlier that we really don't get to know too much about any of these people just like little glimpses and little bits and pieces but yet you feel like you know so much about this michael character just because he's just he's just so uh open and so i mean talk about authenticity i mean he feels seriously like a real person that you have gotten to know by the end of this two hours He's a broken person in the last uh, Michael Martin. Anyway, he plays a character named Michael and he um, is where all the other people are sort of denizens of the bar. He's a citizen of it. He ha- he lives there. He camps out. Uh, we're, we're led to we're, we're sort of shown that very frequently he'll have he'll camp out on either the stoop or just outside the bar or in the um, uh, like a sort of dusty couch in the corner and mm-hmm. keeps a lot of his stuff uh you know in hidden alcoves inside the bar his his personal effects his belongings he has a very quiet understated conversation with one of the char- one of the, one of the other characters whose name again like it's kind of hard to grab all the names out of the characters in this movie yeah, but um yeah. one of the younger characters who um is comparing his own sort of destitute circumstances with Michael's and he says yeah but um you know I'm sure you have a bed and the character says, uh, the other character is like, yeah, I have a bed. I have a bed, man. I do. And he goes, well, you're ahead of the game then, you know, versus me. And then one of the most touching things that made me want to cry is that the, the other character said, I have a couch too, man. I have a couch. And yeah. he basically was offering him his couch. And that was so sweet. That made me want to cry. And you hear those drunken conversations, whether that guy really meant it or not. It's kind of like the beer talk that you do hear. Right. And that sometimes you're you say sometimes that you will say, and this is a, a bar where like the drugs are flowing very freely. Everybody's doing coke. Everybody's doing um, uh, doing acid and like getting fucked up and doing Molly and stuff. But they're not. It's very real where it's not like Hunter S. Thompson shit. It's not fear and loathing in Las Vegas, tripping balls falling all over the place. It's just everybody's kind of faded to one yeah. degree or another. Everybody like is kind of move and when you're when you're doing a little bit of coke like that's the kind of shit that you say to like a vagrant who you're kind of semi friends <laughs> with you're like hey i got a couch man and to me that's sweet that's so nice yeah. because that's what the best parts of you come out when you're on cocaine yeah. like the, and then i'm like you we really gotta go we, we, we gotta leave man we, we gotta we get gotta out of here no this is my new friend michael um <laughs> but yeah i mean and for me one of my favorite scenes with Michael Martin, who again deserves a, an Academy Award, and I'm again, I'm not being hyperbolic. This guy does an incredible job in like the four or five 
really crunchy scenes that they give him to work with because he's throughout he's he's in a lot of the movie but he oh, has yeah. four or he's five he's the closest thing to a through line the movie has as far as like yeah. any particular character right he introduces the movie by being the first patron to show up in the morning and we're led to believe that every morning he shows up there first before anybody yeah. else and uh he's also in a um just exceedingly bittersweet sad you know quiet moment the last the last patron to leave the bar we're, we're mm. led to believe because i think the last people that are there are employees who are locking up yeah the other scene was between him and a, uh, an actor who i looked up the name his name's peter elswith he plays a character named pete and the two of them the character pete is a younger guy and maybe like his uh, late 20s early 30s drunk kind of on we're shown again that in this little short aperture that we see of these people's one night that this guy pete is pretty much on the same track as Michael, who's an older man, a, a much older man. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, what did you think of that scene? Maybe you can describe it and tell me what what, what your impression was of the, the two of them on the couch. Yeah, I mean, it was just like a really sweet thing that the two of them had. I mean, you could tell that the these two people within the, the world of this movie have just you know, really bonded over, over this like sense of community that we've been talking about with, with the, uh, the feeling that is alive there in the bar. And these two people, they, they just, they connect in such a way that it's just really touching to, to watch and, and to see that like, they probably don't get that anywhere else, but they get it from this friendship that is bonded within the bar. Even if, like we said, they're completely faded and, you know, who yeah. knows how much of it lasts into the next day. But for the moment, for for being there, it's there. Yeah, when, and the, what's happening is that on this like dusty, shitty bar couch, the character Michael was in the process of kind of falling asleep in the middle of this very raucous party, this goodbye party. And, Pete's character, who wants to keep the party going, is trying to wake him up. Come on, get back to the party. Let's have fun. And they engage in this conversation where where Michael basically tells him, like, you got to get out of this bar. You got to get out of this bar and not go back into another one. And asks him, like, how old do you think I am? And, you know, the Pete character is cordial and and, and nice about it and and guesses something, you know, far younger because this guy does look like he's in his 70s. And, uh, and he's like, I'm 58. I'm only 58 years old. Look at me. This is what mm-hmm. this has done to me. And, um, you know, I don't want to take the piss out of this movie for anybody. I, I mean, like, you should watch it yourself. I'm not doing it justice. And the scene is just, another, again, another, another scene that's, like, really touching, very real and profound. It's this, like, concept of shared failure or maybe aspirational failure. Like, this guy Pete knows he's on the track to be that and at the age of 29 or 30 or whatever. He's fine with it. Because that's kind of like that rebellious streak you have or just that stupid, dumb bravery where like life is going to figure itself out. I'll be okay. I'll get it. Even at our age, we still have that in some ways. Like, like, I'll figure it out. It'll be fine. You know, I still have plenty of time. And you made this observation when we were talking about it. A lot of the characters that we meet before Nightfall in this movie are older. They're older people. And they're, I would just guess, like 50s, 60s, 70s. And then the younger people show up at night. There's like a crowd of sort of younger, you know, I guess avatars for the older people. Like they're going to be those older people in a few years, in a few decades, I should say. But um, uh, talk a little bit about the character who was, um, there were two characters who both played, and and their narrative I thought was really interesting. It was two characters, um, uh, an older white woman and an older black man. And the two of them were commiserating over their shared experience in uh in 
the in the military and mm-hmm. the way that they'd been discarded and the way that nobody in their life wanted them anymore and only the two of them wanted to be with each other and uh and they didn't have family left they didn't have anybody that was you know left in their in their lives and all that they had was this sort of this community this bar like what did you yeah do you, do you remember the scene i'm talking about right i mean it kind of oh, yeah. came really quick but it was also like the most powerful scene probably in the movie oh yeah absolutely and uh i i think it really like speaks to the idea that these people probably outside of this bar have if they do have anyone left they've been like pushed away they've been alienating other people outside of this uh this little world that they have there but yeah i don't have the character's name but but the black dude who's who's a veteran i i love that character um almost as much as michael i i just think he's so great and um he's such a such a fully realized person you know he's he's that guy who he is that guy he's just you always overhear him at a bar yeah you overhear him he's got these big ideas and butts in every conversation and he's just he's such a perfect character you can't quite enunciate what his ideas are yeah yeah. but they're very conspiratorial and they're (laughs) very like you know dark and they're very like (laughs) there's i forget what the scene is but he's basically like at one point there's two younger guys talking about just like i don't know the other thing I really love about this movie that's very real is everybody's politics and ideas and like their their narratives and the things that they're talking about are wrong and broken in a lot of uh-huh. weird fucked up ways. There's a lot of a, a lot of generational warfare and blaming of the older people, the older mm-hmm. people blaming themselves, but telling the young people that they're pussies. And yeah. like, I, I love that broken dialogue because that's real, like that broken dysfunctional, um, the dysfunctional beliefs that are just really rooted in like acrimony and this lived experience of constantly getting fucked over in life of this like larger machine of America, just fucking you over. And all these people are in various stages of getting fucked over by this machine. And they all, you know what it reminds me of? I'll tell you what this movie reminds me of the parable of the fucking, the thing that, that, that a million movies have used in, in a terrible way and never used right. The parable of the the blind man and the elephant. You know this? I think I've heard this before. So the the blind man and the elephant is where you, or it's, I guess it's multiple blind men or blindfolded men or something, or I don't know. It it has to be your bull. I forget. No, but um, it's it's the it's the the thing where like if a if if a bunch of blind men touch an elephant in a different place, they'll describe ten different animals based mm. on what they're touching, and. Uh, that's what that's what happens in this movie and what the what the a lot of the interaction between these people boils down to is that they're all in a different place in their life on this on this cycle of getting fucked over mm. and and trampled and run over by um American capitalism and by our empire right because a lot of them were served in the military and just being refuse from the yeah. American experiment and they're all touching it in a different place and they all have a different prescription of what of what's wrong with the world and what led to this like cataclysmic for them this cataclysmic moment of their of their community bar their institution shutting down they all are fighting over what's wrong and they're all right they're all correct sure. in in everything that they say is equally right and also wrong at the same time mm. yeah it's got to be a really hard movie to write because like, you know, with them not being trained actors, most of them, like you, you 
you got to assume that it's not a, a lot of improv involved. I mean, there's maybe some, but uh, a lot of this has to be written and it's got to be a hard thing to really like put to paper in any meaningful I have, way. I have a little insight on that. Not a lot was put on paper. Oh, okay. There were, um, based on, again, I listened to an interview uh, that was done by IndieWire with um, with the, these two directors, uh, these two creators, I guess, because, again, these guys were just with handhelds going around and being like, don't look at us. We pretend we're not here, mm-hmm. um, which is why it had that cinema verite feel to it. And, um, or I guess you call it direct cinema. Like, technically, this is direct cinema, not cinema verite. Okay. But um, anyway, there were prompts and character points basically like they would tell people your character has a b and c and then fill in whatever else you want you're going to have a conversation at some point during the night with this person and it's going to be about broadly this Mm. and so i think that they must have committed some things to script but i think that's probably particularly dialogue i think must have been committed to, to paper because there are some things that were just too deep and too profound and i mean too perfect and it's it's i like for instance the scene that we talked about earlier where um peter elwis i think his last name's elwis or else elsu or something like that and michael martin were on the couch that was a scripted scene Mm. and it was beautiful and it was great and it was well written and those are two actors those are two actors with previous credits if you look at their imdb so those are two trained actors right not so for a lot of the other scenes yeah, and I think what they were doing was just working off prompts, which which is a fascinating way to do it. And it, I mean, yeah. I guess it was like could have turned out really bad, yeah. and it didn't. It didn't. That's amazing. You you know another thing that you should have some good insight into. Uh, we should talk about the bartenders for a minute because you oh, have, yeah. you've been on both sides of the bar. You have been a bartender yeah. a bunch of I've times over the years, various different places, small places like this and big Vegasy clubs as well. So, yeah. uh how how do you feel about the portrayal of these bartender characters? The 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 bartender, there are two archetypes that they show. There's the um and it, they nailed also the shifts that they work. The burly <laughs> brawny dude working the day shift who used to be, who's maybe a little bit past his prime, mid to late 30s, probably used to bartend on the strip, packed on 20, 30 pounds too much to, to be able to pull <laughs> off the, the 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 sexy guy look and then is relegated to off strip, basically. Uh-huh. And, but has the personality, has the patter, has the like the conversation skills. I mean, in this case, this character um, had, uh, you know, broke out the guitar and would play music. And I know those bars, those bartenders. I viewed those guys growing up. I, I, and I say growing up because I was really a kid when this shit was going on. But like, I viewed them aspirationally. Like, wouldn't it be cool to be that guy one right. day? And, um, and those guys make money. That's the thing. That guy's not like poor because he gets tokes off of the machine. And the machines will pay out like, I don't know, a couple thousand in a day. And so you bring home four or 500 bucks off of, off of the machine play, plus like a hundred bucks from your tips. That's $500 for a day of work. You know, that's not so bad. And then uh, if you pull like a, you know, weekend shift, you get even more. And then the other archetype was the, um, her looks are fading single mom, Mm. uh, bartender, you know, woman, uh, and, I, I knew that character too. She's she's very like they nailed it, man. She's very like accommodating and understanding to a point, and is very sweet because she is 
manipulating and being in charge of a situation that could go bad. You know, we see a few times there's almost a bar fight. There are altercations. There are people who um, don't pay their tab or, you know, things like that. That doesn't happen in the movie, I don't think. But that is another thing that uh, that 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 archetype has to deal with, has to has to struggle with. I thought they nailed the bartenders and the bartenders. I, I thought that. Another thing she has to do is sort of reject the advances of a lot mm-hmm. of the uh, of a lot of the which I mean those women are brick walls. You're yeah. not getting through. You're not gonna. <laughs> you're not breaking down those walls. Those women, you'll think the whole night long that this that that oh she's in love with me. She she she. If she could only see what I really am on the inside, what my soul is like, <laughs> this could be the one. Yeah. And you literally don't exist to her. You. <laughs> you are you are a void of of like gray that all she sees is a void of gray mm-hmm. and a, a, a bar tab that's all that she sees when she looks at you and you do not exist uh and so i thought they nailed them you know and the sort of general attitude that they have but yeah they they, they killed it they, they did a good job i don't know if those are archetypes that translate outside of las vegas i think those are really specific bartender types. I don't really see those people. Like I've lived in Miami 15 years now and never bartended here or anything like that, but I've been to bars, been to a lot of bars, spent a lot of time in bars here. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't, uh, I think that that's a uniquely Vegas thing. And I think that those guys really benefited uh, the Ross brothers from their, their extensive research that they did by, by nailing those characters down. You know, one other thing I uh, I wanted to bring up is the music in this movie, which I I still am just baffled how they got the clearance for this much music. Um, there's <laughs> okay. so much Michael Jackson. You're not going to like the answer. Just you're not going to like the answer. Okay. So these guys, and they talked about that on that same podcast that I listened to. The Ross brothers, instead of spending money on clearances, they spend money on a clearance lawyer, and the lawyer. Mm. Uh, writes in and contributes to the script and contributes to the um, editing process to put the music in a specific context where it's fair use. And every single one of these has been passed through a legal filter. Every use of these of, of music in this movie has been passed through a legal filter that clears the um, definition of fair use because that is something that they mentioned. Uh, one of the things that they one of the things that was they were very much sabotaged in this regard too because they wanted for the purposes of editing in, in post in post they wanted there to be no music playing during the night of the filming which would have been weird i'd imagine and apparently they had a mutiny the bar the the actors mutinied on them yeah. and refused to allow it the actors said no we want this can't be a party because they the the direction was the key overarching direction from these two directors was actually have fun, drink, party, have right. a good time, natural reactions, you know, follow the prompts, follow the script to the extent that you can, but be natural and be real. And every once in a while they would go and they would shut off the, the jukebox and then somebody would be like, where the hell is the music? You guys fucking yeah. can't keep shutting the music off. And they said in their own words that they had a mutiny on their hands, basically. Like the, the, That's amazing. the ver- various actors were just turning the music back on and telling them to fuck off. So after that, they had to go to their lawyer and say, okay, we've got all this stuff with Michael Jackson. The back yeah. and, all the- and so the lawyer would give them very specific instructions of how to make sure that it passes fair use, the criteria for fair use. And, uh, and they were able to do it without having to Except, I think in in some circumstances they had to pay, but um, 
for the most part, they didn't. That's awesome. Like, I, I'm glad they were able to make that work because, again, that that speaks to the authenticity of the movie because you you cannot have a night out at a bar without hearing Michael Jackson, without even if even yeah. if it's a freaking you know metal bar, so you're still gonna hear Michael. Jackson no, it's gonna play. Yeah, you're gonna hear that. You're gonna hear like you know, very, you're gonna hear some TLC no uh-huh. matter what. Like you're gonna yeah. hear some shit that is always played in a bar. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pose a question to you. Hmm. Before we get into these puzzle pieces now. Sure. Where in Las Vegas would you set a single location movie? And I have an answer for this. But if you had, you know, this enormous Hollywood budget that the Ross brothers had of like fifteen thousand dollars, yeah. And you were able to make you're able to make this movie, uh, or a movie, um, where would you set uh, you know, twenty four hours uh or one night in uh, in the life of type movie? In Vegas. Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult question to answer because I, I'm sure it's like all really difficult. Give me your pitch. And all Give me a pitch. Come on, on the on the on the fly, pitch me. Okay, here. An here's the interesting, setting. an interesting movie, and I. This is just such a, a basic answer, but would be Fremont East. I mean, that would be the okay. interesting place to to set the movie. I think. When, what what's going on there? Like, what's the tenor of Fremont East? Fremont well, East to me was like, it, back in the days, was very much like the neighborhood where this place takes, where this movie takes place, which was just people laying in the street with gunshot wounds. I mean, like, <laughs> I, again, not being hyperbolic. Like, right. people just lay, like bleeding out in the street. But I know that it's completely different now. Well, it might be like that now because of COVID, but uh, certainly for the last <laughs> 10 years, though, it hasn't been like that ever since with the downtown project and all that, Tony Shea and all that. And and yeah, I mean, that's where all of like the hip bars are. And they've really just revitalized it with like, it, it just has its own look. It's very Vegas, but at the same time, it's, you know, more of like a hipster downtown Vegas. And I think, I think it would lend itself to a very like, like flashy film. So mine would be the various people and stories and interactions that happen at a record store off the strip that in the, and this is how I would tweak it in the Mm -hmm. morning, early in the morning, it's the father opens it up eight in the morning, works until like four o'clock. The sun comes in and this is a record store that is open till 10 o'clock at night. And it's a completely different situation after, after the owner leaves and the sun is in charge and um i if only i could find a location i think that this could be a really cool movie uh that that, that we could i I like i like i like all of it except for the real life version where i work till 10 p.m i I, (laughs) please leave me out of which would never fucking happen (laughs) um so yeah i just want to once more before we jump into the puzzle pieces michael martin supporting best supporting actor Come on, guys, let's make this happen. I don't even know how you do it. Like, what is the way that you create a uh, a, a, a grassroots campaign like this, Dave? Like, let's 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 get Michael Martin's name out there. I'm in. I'm in. Okay. I, I think I think it should happen. So let's jump into the puzzle pieces, which that's yeah. actually your job to have said that. So I wish that that, you that is would that is take my your job. Work more seriously. And so, Q, uh, what do you got for your first puzzle piece? <laughs> <laughs> Did I do What's good? The movie? What is the movie? What is the movie that you guys are always doing for a puzzle piece that I made fun of? Evil Dead. No, it's not Evil Dead. That is one though. No, yeah. it's it's something else. Yeah, I feel like it was Heat or something. But uh, no, whatever. Okay, so my first puzzle piece is a little messy. I know that you have some messiness built into yours too, and we've actually already used 
the name of one of my puzzle pieces several times. My puzzle piece is two things. It's it's it. My first one is an American Family, which was the 1973 PBS documentary by Craig Gilbert, and then the HBO fictionalization of the making of that documentary, which was called Cinema Verite, which came out in 2011, mm-hmm. and was um, directed by Sherry Springer Berman and the team of Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini. Um, it, this follows the Loud Family, which was this incredibly, you know, th- this documentary was this incredibly influential text of uh, of how what television and what film would become later it was this look into uh, a family that this was a con as opposed to bloody nose uh empty pockets as opposed to this scripted you know non-documentary movie this was a documentary this started as a documentary and right. cinema verite was like more of a prestige you know with that hbo sheen added to it Hmm. very faithful from what i understand recreation of of the uh of of the series and with a look behind the scenes of what was going on a lot of the um characters from that you know for instance the son was one of the first gay people that was you know kind of it, in this in the early 70s it was this really weird situation where it was like the liberal everybody knew liberace was gay but like right. nobody would say it you know it was one of those things uh it, that was kind of the prevailing attitude still in the in the in the early to mid seventies, and um, that one of the sons on this show was gay, and uh, obviously it was a very early depiction of divorce, which you didn't see divorce happen very often very um, on on television. It was more specifically a harsher look at the failings of the American dream and the fi- and the fictions of what the American dream is. Um, and this was an upper middle class, waspy, rich, white family, and you saw the cracks uh, in in what their existence was. Now, I'm not trying to compare their existence to the the, the characters and the, the people that we meet in the Roaring Twenties, but they are pulling back the same curtain. They're showing the same failings. They're showing the same faults with our culture, with our society. They're showing all the same sh- uh, shortcomings that uh you know versus what you think you're being promised what you think you're going to get out of life and you know what you actually do get and with the way that it was shot similarly it's unflinching and very um you know to the bone i i would say do you ever see either of those or no I, I never have. I certainly am aware of it. And my first piece was just going to be reality television as a medium because reality television as a medium was obviously birthed mostly from right. Like the modern, what we think of as reality television, I think you can agree came from real world and real world was a direct descendant of an American family. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And, and I think that it's, it's important to note that blurred line of this movie between what's reality and, and, and what's scripted. And that's, you know, a thing with reality television that you never quite know exactly. And, and it doesn't matter exactly what is and isn't real within the movie. And of course we, we know bloody nose empty pockets is, you know, essentially completely a, a, a narrative film, but still just keeping you, uh, uncertain of how much of it is, is either scripted or improv or based in some form of reality is something that, uh, really makes it interesting and is what I think people take away from reality TV so much. 
That's funny you say that because like that triggered a memory for me, a moment when you and I were doing less of this kind of going out. There was like, we went in phases, right? We would Mm. be like fancy lads on some occasions. And then there were some times where we were like complete scumbags. And I would still wear um, my, uh, my new balance though, no matter what. (laughs) And at at risk of getting us kicked out of whatever fucking trendy ass place we were trying to go to. Um, On that topic though, there was like a, a brief, period i suppose where like we were going i mean the the palm sticks out of my head a lot but like the the various clubs and you know high rent type places that were at at the is the palm still like trendy and cool is it still like the place to go get hepatitis or like what the palms hasn't reopened since covid and there's rumors it never will so wow okay (laughs) so there you go there was a boys and girls once upon a time the palms was the cool shit to do it was this it was like it had the four coolest clubs in vegas if that's what you were into doing yeah were at the palms and dave and i would go with a you know rotating cast of friends and um significant others and this was happening dave at the same time do you remember this was going on during the same time that they were shooting the real world season in las vegas oh yeah and I think to your point about like that blurred line, how many times did we walk up to a venue where it was like, oh, if you're coming into this, there was like a disclaimer outside. Like, oh, if you're coming into this venue, know that, you know, you're being filmed. We have this, this shooting happening or this, this filming happening. You go in and we would see things like I specifically think of not even at the, at the Palms, but at the Venetian at V bar where, where we would very frequently go in a quote unquote ultra lounge, which I'm another thing. I'm not sure if it still exists or not in, uh, in, in, in the Venetian. And um, you would see them go through a scene. They would do yeah. like the same thing a few times. And it's like, well, isn't this reality television? That's like, well, maybe we just didn't get that shot. Can you guys do that again? Okay. So where is that on the spectrum of reality different than what we saw in a, something like you know bloody noses uh, empty pockets like the, the the lines are really blurred like what's more real like what layer of verisimilitude gets but more credit than the other like i yeah. almost would say that this scripted written thing starring these very real people behaving in very real ways in some ways could be more real than that you know acted out scene from the real world which or real world which was ostensibly quote-unquote reality television and in, in right. some level of a documentary but like when you live in a place like las vegas and you actually go to those places where they're filming those things you again we talk about the curtain being pulled back you actually get to see this is bullshit yeah and it's not even like it's not even honest bullshit it's like just bullshit bullshit it's not true at all and it's funny you said that because i triggered those memories of when we would that period of time when we were going to those fucking like expensive ass nightclubs and shit like that. And we, we just got it in our heads that we wanted to be there and we would see all this reality show shit happening around us. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to go to another piece that is too new to actually be a, a real influence on this movie, but I feel works as a really great companion piece to this movie. And it's also from 2020. It's called Another Round. It's a Danish film from Thomas Vinterberg, which is probably going to be up for the foreign film Oscar this year. The movie looks so good. I want to see it. It's great. It's absolutely great. And it, it stars Madge Mikkelsen as this teacher who, along with uh, some of his other teachers that he's friends with, they're kind of at a point in 
their German. life, they're, they're all kind of German. Uh, they're at a point in their life and their career where they, they just feel like kind of in a rut and they don't feel like they've got anything going on really. And there's this theory that the human body is born lacking 0.5 or is it 0.05% blood alcohol content? Yeah, the way I read it is that there's this like theory, like you say, that there's a, that the human body is born and operates throughout life at a deficit of yeah. what should be a, a 0.5 percent or 0.5. you know yeah five percent or 4.5 percent. i don't know whatever just like halfway basically like you should be going through life half drunk yes exactly and is the idea yeah and and it, it makes a lot of sense the way that they put it and of course you know it works really well to begin with and i'm not going to spoil where things go but the point being though the the reason why it makes such a great companion piece to this is that you know, these people are just so lonely and just need, you know, they, they need friendship. They need, they need something more out of life, you know, and mm -hmm. alcohol kind of facilitates that. And for these people in the bar and bloody nose, empty pockets, you know, gathering around alcohol and drugs and, and, you know, they get that kind of community. But of course the problem is, you know, keeping a balance within life because of course once those things come into the picture things can go bad quick and so it's it's important you know for like a character like michael in this movie uh you know to impart that wisdom that you know get out of here because you know don't come back because uh it's it's not going to be good if this is your life going forward so so i think that they're they're really great movies that deal with similar themes in that way so I, I can't wait to see that movie. I think it looks great, but I can't really comment any further on it. And I also don't want to ruin it for anybody because it's kind of like a new movie. And yeah, I, 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 I watched the trailer or whatever. And obviously things, you know, there's a third act to every movie and things appear to go awry. And I'm not going to like get into like what it looks like happens, but sure, it's a, it's a bunch of middle-aged guys that decide that they want to get drunk all the time and they have normal <laughs> family lives. Just imagine hijinks ensue. Yes, um, yes. So like, all right. My next piece, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I would be stunned if my piece did not have some influence on this movie. I would be shocked if we sat the Ross brothers down and strapped them into the you know polygraph machine and they said that they had never seen this movie and that it didn't have any, any um, influence. It's a movie that I've recommended to you a lot. And I, you haven't watched it, but that's okay. Yeah. It's on. It's it's freely available. It's on YouTube right now. It's called Last Night at the Alamo. It's from 1984. It was um uh, something of a lost film from the 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 late great Eagle Pinnell, who was this Austin filmmaker who was uh, the stuff of legends. He was one of the sort of like kind of like a founding patron saint of South by Southwest. He was one of the like um, one of the I, I guess he like he was sort of like the a big influence on Richard Linkletter and that entire Austin film movement. He and if you watch this movie last night at the Alamo, you, you will see where Richard Linkletter got a lot. Like you'll feel like you're watching a very like a a, a proto version of um, Slackers. You'll feel like you're watching very very early Linkletter. You'll understand where that sort of I, I don't know if there's like some sort of film term for that that pattery unhinged dialogue that ends up getting really refined and and done really well in the various midnight movies down the road but mm -hmm. that that link letter that signature link letter dialogue of the way that characters interact with each other and the way that characters uh, in scenes feel like they're the only people in the universe to each other and it's just those two people in the whole world 
And um, this is a very rough movie. Like it's a, it's, it's, it's very rough hewn, you know, tattered around the edges. It's about, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's about the last night at a bar that's going out of business uh, and all of the patrons coming together for one last party. And, and this happens to be called the Alamo and it's in Houston, which is kind of a little joke because sure. the Alamo is in San Antonio. So uh, it's, it's a bar. It's, it's, um it depicts a lot of, it, it, it depicts the 1984 exact slice of society that bloody nose, empty pockets depicts the exact right. characters. You can draw one-to-one comparisons on a bunch of the characters. Now it's the eighties. The portrayal is a little bit different, but it's still done in that very, like, as I said before, direct cinema kind of way where it's like, you you don't feel like these characters are acting. It's a lot of them feel like they're just working off of prompts. Yeah. Eagle Pinnell was a very shoot from the hip type of director. Obviously he died very young uh, from alcohol abuse and from drug abuse and had his own problems. But in during his time directed some brilliant independent film. A lot of and was incredibly influential on on filmmakers like Richard Linkletter and a lot of other people. So last night at the Alamo, it's on YouTube. You can go find it. You can watch it. It was a lost film for a long time. I randomly saw it at South by Southwest one one year when they had um, recovered a print of it. Mm. It's a great movie. It's funny. It's loose. It's unhinged. Right. It has an element of sadness. Yeah, great movie. I'm looking forward to it. I, I, it is on my to-do list to watch this movie. I, I'm going to watch this movie, uh, and, and it sounds really great. A lot of influential, like you can see, it's it, it, it had to influence like uh, Kevin Smith, early Kevin mm-hmm. Smith stuff, like very dialogue-driven, snappy, pattery. You, you see '80s movies, and they don't sound like that. And all, and today, all movies sound like that. Everybody talks like real people talking, right? Instead right. of bullshit. Instead of like. You know, it, it was, it's just that moment. We, you and I always talk about that, that little 10 year moment where the, the way that actors act changed. Yeah. Like they went from acting like actors to acting like people. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good transition to my, my next piece. And this is probably the only one on my list that I think maybe had actual definitive influence on these directors. Uh, and it's actually a filmmaker. It's Harmony Corinne. And really just like his whole style, like going back to writing kids to the stuff he's directed, Gummo and uh, Spring Breakers to a lesser degree, the beach bum and, you know, just centering his films around these people who just feel like this guy just showed up with the camera and found some people and started filming them. And, you know, as we've been talking about through this whole conversation, uh, that level of authenticity is something that it's really pretty damn magical that uh, the, these directors have been able to pull out of these, you know, for the most part, non-actor performers and like right. to really make them feel like such real people is so amazing. And that's something that uh, has been like really a hallmark of Harmony Corinne's career. And then uh, also in a review I read earlier today, I happen to notice someone else point out this comparison and also the fact that the closing song in this movie, Peggy Lee's, is that all there is, is used in two Harmony Corinne movies. So there's another comparison right there. Can we talk about really quick the the, the last scene? Mike, another just, uh, just rapier sharp, like small, understated, but but perfect performance by Michael Martin. The last few lines of dialogue delivered in this movie, while he's um, do you remember the ending of the movie or no? Yeah, yeah, where he like 
he's got that anger yeah like the way that the i guess there's like a morning bartender who comes in it's not the same bartender it's the morning shift bartender who comes in and michael martin's character is asleep on the couch and she tells him he has to get going the bar is closing and it's closing for good and she's having just a really casual conversation about i think moving either to like colorado or going on like a trip to europe with you know uh, another employee who's there and you know the woman's being sort of very perfunctorily polite with him but uh he packs together his stuff and just sort of she asks this very like kind of you know when people ask you something but they don't really care about the answer she asks like oh you got someplace to go you got somewhere to drive you and i think what is implied is like she she doesn't understand what his circumstance is that he's a homeless person he's he's he does not have a house he's going out onto the streets and kind of under half under his breath he just says you never fucking knew me at all did you mm-hmm. and she goes what's that what's that hun and he's like uh just nothing uh never mind and on his way out he kind of stops in the doorway and says uh you had a really great place here yeah and it's such an affecting line and delivery and and, and close to the movie it's unbelievable so good and i think that the song is playing at that time right isn't it yeah is that that's what that was the needle drop for for the song right um yeah, just then yeah so how about this one dave i think this is one of your maybe all-time favorite movies i think i remember you really liking this movie or maybe i have this wrong anyway i had mentioned uh sherry springer bergman and the, the team of sherry springer bergman and um robert pulcini earlier when i talked about their 2011 work on um, cinema verite but more people probably remember them from their 2003 Paul Giamatti classic, American Splendor. Hmm. And uh, which I don't know if you ever saw that or not. I, th- I feel like that was a movie you liked. And yeah, sure. Like, took me a little while to like get into that. Anyway, it tells the story of, uh, I forget the guy's name, the cartoonist, uh, the, the very famous, uh, whatever. You can drop it in here later. I don't know. Fucking whatever. <laughs> the, it, it's the cartoonist guy from fucking American Splendor. Yeah. And, um, it's got the same kind of feel. It's got the same kind of vibe. It's got the same kind of like they use some characters that are not actors. And uh, and uh, this incredible actor, Paul Giamatti, is interacting with them in um, you know a very real way. I believe that there's actually a few scenes where he interacts with some of the people from the actual cartoonist's life. And they do like fourth wall breaking and a lot of really fun cinema stuff in that movie. Um, when's the last time you saw American Splendor, Dave? I haven't seen it in a long time, but I believe. Am I just hanging that on you that you were like a fan of that movie? I thought that you were for some you reason. Are, you are a little bit. I've, I've seen it one time and it's a very good movie, but I, I believe I'm going to be watching it for an upcoming episode of uh, Awesome Movie Year. Awesome Movie so, Year? Yeah, okay, cool. So, yeah, uh, I haven't seen it for a while either, but I got the same vibes off of it that i did in this movie well i'm looking forward to revisiting it um i will go for my next piece and uh this one actually i think kind of connects a little bit to what you were just saying about that uh that final scene uh with michael but i'm gonna go with charlie kaufman's anomalisa the stop motion animated uh film that he put out uh directed actually co-directed by duke johnson i believe the the name was who did the actual animation portions but um it's it's this movie about this guy who has this condition where everybody in the world has the same voice until he meets this girl uh and her voice is just like this ray of of sunshine 
uh, until spoiler alert for uh, Anomalisa, but it's, you know, about an eight year old movie at this point, the voice starts going back to uh, the same voice that everybody else has. And it's just about this guy who just absolutely cannot connect with any or anything and who so desperately craves human connection in in, in some way. And you know, all these people at this bar, like some of the stuff we were talking about, like they're just so are in need of connection. They aren't getting it from they, they either don't have or they're just alienated from family or friends or anything like that outside of this little community that they've built. And uh, so so this bar, the Roaring Twenties, it is their their community it is their family. It's the people that they are getting that kind of connection from. But it's it's closing it's going away and that also brings this this heavy hardness to it and as we see in that final scene with michael it's just uh you know it's heartbreaking that these people might not get to continue having each other and in anomalisa you end on this you know typically charlie calvin <laughs> depressing fashion of this guy who just has no connection to anything it's the only calvin movie i still haven't seen Oh, I wow. To, I have to say it. Yeah. So I have to take your word on a lot of that. Um, but I, I know you've talked about that. Uh, ad. Uh, now I'm remembering the movie that we that that if you track all the pieces on piecing it together that have been pieced, probably the most pieced movie is adaptation. I I, I'm sure I've brought that up a million times. <laughs> yes. A million times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's possible that I've brought up Eternal Sunshine more, though, uh, but definitely lots. Oh, of yeah, that could be. too. <laughs> so. All right, what, what do you got next? So the next one I have is maybe a little basic, but I think it holds. 1995's Leaving Las Vegas, which was this, uh, for those who don't remember, the um, this boozy, blood-stained, suicidal romance that, um, I, how the hell did they, only in the 90s could you have gotten this movie financed and, yeah. and made. Like, there was never a point where you could make this kind of, there was like the same thing with like, like psychosexual thrillers right. and like weird sexy shit in the nineties. People were weird. very, very pre. The nineties was like was a very strange time. Um, Nick Cage, Elizabeth, Sh Nick Cage was playing a um, you know a breaking a falling apart, breaking down writer uh, who was you know go on on a quest to. I feel like this is like anybody who's listening to, to this podcast probably already knows the rundown of leaving Las Vegas, but. He was on a quest to drink himself to death. Obviously, Elizabeth Shue, as a um, Las Vegas prostitute, introduces herself to into his life. And slowly, I guess, it's a little more complicated than this, but gives him a reason to live. And then the dynamics kind of change in the relationship. It was directed by John Figgis. Kind of like the only really good thing he ever made, right? Like, I don't think he really made much else. N yeah, not that I could think of. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, he made things, but nothing like this. Right. this like got a lot of Academy Award consideration and um, gave Nicolas Cage his only Oscar. Or did does he have two? He just has one, right? I think just, just the, one. the one. It, it's hilarious because you can never take it back. Nick Cage has an Oscar. Well, there's nothing anyone can do about he's that. He's fucking amazing, so that's okay. <laughs> I absolutely deserved it. Um, so yeah, I mean, we talked earlier in the episode, which now is dragging on pretty long, but um. We talked earlier in the episode about like showing that middle ground, that middle distance of of Vegas, that like kind of real Vegas. People always say real Vegas, like what is real Vegas? Mm -hmm. This movie did it. There are scenes for sure in the '90s version of the Strip, and I think it was in like the Flamingo and uh, the Riviera and some of those like more for that 
you know, contemporaneously, the, the more higher class casinos or whatever, but that, you know, for instance, the shoe works the floor in a lot of those places, but, um, there were also bars that, I mean, it was probably shot in somewhere in Hollywood, but it was fashion to look like, I don't know, pinkies. It was fashion to look like, uh, you know, a lot of the bars that we're talking about. I don't know. When's the last time you saw this movie, Dave? Yeah, no, it's funny you asked that because the, that's what I was about to say is I haven't seen it since like when it first came out or maybe not first came out, like when it first came out on, on video. But I, I was actually thinking about watching it in anticipation of this episode because I, I had thought of it. Um, but I haven't it's seen it in so damn long. It's yeah. got a lot of it's a it's a good Vegas movie. It's got a lot of Vegas um Easter eggs and there's I gotta, a bar. I watch it soon. There's like a pool hall bar that and again, I don't know, there's no database to find where these things were shot, but it looks a lot like this bar that you and I used to spend a lot of time in called Pinkies. <laughs> and it, it looks and it's it's funny to see it on film and be like is that pinkies which is a very unique sort of pool hall where it was just this like sea of pool tables leading up to like a, a raised bar that goes back down into like a, a pit where they had wet t-shirt contests mm-hmm. it was a very unique bar that i think has been demolished for yeah. years actually in, there's in a Vegas. chick-fil-a there now i think <laughs> <laughs> Kumsi <laughs> kumsa, I suppose. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll do one last puzzle piece here, and it, it really kind of goes along with that last one, and is kind of retreading some of the territory we've been talking about here. But uh, it's Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation with Bill Murray and, and uh, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just this movie about just craving connection, being in in this this place where you just don't have anybody to commiserate with and to to you know have any any kind of friendship or anything with and just craving that so much and finding it and these people find it within this bar that we're in 20s. Yeah, I mean, we talk on Bird Road a lot about this, right? The epidemic of loneliness. Right. That's probably the defining characteristic. We talked about that of of this like of this age, I sh- I, I would say. And then we talked about that a lot before COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel honestly, I don't use the word blessed a lot because that's like some live, laugh, love, target shit. You right. know, I feel like it, like some Facebook mom, Instagram influencer bullshit. <laughs> but like, I do really feel blessed that I have a few friends. I have you. I have my family every single day going through this stuff in this house, loving each other, fighting yelling at each other, like being with each other, laying down next to each other at night. And all that I can think of sometimes is the dynamics around this country that have separated people and partitioned people into little apartments and single person domiciles. And then even some people who like do have either roommates or family that they live with, but they're like, they're spiritually disconnected from them. They might Mm -hmm. as well be living alone. Yeah, and that the counterparts might as well be living alone too, and all the things that our culture has done to like break up the bonds and break up these institutions that actually cure loneliness, or at least in the case of the Roaring Twenties, they're not a cure, but they're a salve for sure. the loneliness, at least right. you know. And um, and I can't help but think, like, here's a question, maybe to end this on, like, what do you think these people are doing now? Right. In the last nine months, because they filmed this, I think, in 2016, you know, these characters, like what would they be doing now? We talked, we we, we kind of 
downplay the idea of like really deleterious uh, mental illness and and eventually suicide because usually when people talk about that shit, they're doing it because they're bringing it up in context of trying to say like, oh, it's worse than the actual pandemic and they're doing it in a bad faith way and right. you want to tell people like that to fuck off. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're 100% wrong. Mm. People are suffering in way worse ways than you and I with our you know, our beautiful wives and our wonderful homes mm-hmm. are, and a, a lot of the people that we know, you know, and, and, and our loving families. I mean, like, I, I think that that's, even though this movie was made four years ago, it actually makes it really timely because it hits what you're talking about, which is the subject of like just profound loneliness. Yeah, no. And, and it's really, it's, yeah, I hadn't even really thought about it. Like I, I certainly had thought about the, uh, the bar experience and hanging out with people being so, uh, it feels so foreign now, like after these past yeah. nine months, but, but I hadn't thought about these people specifically, like what, what, where are they now? And yeah, I mean, it's really sad to think because a lot of them, I just don't see how they would, uh, how they'd survive something like this, you know? Yeah. And then like, what does not surviving something like this look like? Because right. do they, is it, I mean, when you say not survive, that can mean so many things like, it can mean dying. It can mean being exposed. It can mean like, especially in Vegas or a place like Miami, two of the most cruel places in the world to be housing insecure or to mm-hmm. be homeless. But there's all these other shades of gray, right? Like maybe you're, you have a place to stay, but like your employment gets fucked up or maybe like you're on a, a good path with your sobriety and that gets derailed. Like there's so many shades of like what is what is not making it or not surviving look like like I mean, it might not even involve dying it could just mean like going from where you're hanging on to that last rung of society to where you just fall off yeah i i think we should uh incredible movie i don't want to end it on a negative note yeah. like that it, the, the movie did those are like horrible terrible existential quandaries and circumstances that we're all fighting some way more than others obviously like i say and this movie just did an incredible job of exploring them and illustrating them. So I, yeah, uh, I know that you usually end this with like a broad stroke of, um, of a review of the movie. And I think that people could probably tell from our overall conversation that we really liked it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, and this is a movie also that um, I liked a lot more the second time, like understanding what this movie is, you know, trying to convey it, like it really just all kind of comes together. So uh, people should definitely check it out. I do want to uh, conclude the conversation. We, we still haven't really talked about what bars this is. We should briefly uh, touch on that (sighs) because, because with our, with our extensive research during our twenties, we should uh, have a few ideas. What, what do you, what do you have? Did you like make a little list? It's in the old, it's in the old noggin. All right. How about this? Let's clear some that we already both talked about, like uh, Cheers, sure. right? Cheers is Cheers. I, I think was a bar one. that was located on Maryland the, and uh, Flamingo, forty five hundred block of Maryland Parkway. I believe sounds, sounds about right. And yeah, uh, near Escondido. Uh, if you know Las Vegas, you know that intersection. It was uh, a <laughs> directly across the street from um, UNLV, like the one of the main entrances. The I guess that would be like the east side entrance of UNLV by the best um, Robertos by the best Robertos yeah <laughs> it was the best that was the best Robertos I guess that structure is demolished now right that's it's not gone. there anymore it's gone yeah. that's gone okay um all right so I, I I had Cheers how about you what do you got 
I'll, I'll, I'll toss out a couple. I've got a few. I've got a couple. Okay. Uh, well, the first one that kind of came to mind for me is a place we only went a few times, or maybe maybe we went more than I'm remembering, but uh, you remember the Rum Runner on Tropicana Rum and Runner. Spencer? Thank you. Yes. On Trop, across the street from a place that we went to a lot called Crown and Anchor, mm-hmm. uh, across the street and down the street a little yeah. bit. Also from, across the street uh, from the Liberace Museum that you brought up earlier. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. a puzzle piece within the episode. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, uh, but that is right, just Rum such Runner. such a. Rum just... Runner was this. Rum Runner is a chain, but the one you're talking about specifically is the one on Trop on yeah. East Trop. Yeah, specifically yeah. that one because that one just it, it felt like its own little thing, and it it just it it, it has that kind of authentic you know authentic dive bar feel that the other ones kind of don't have. The other ones feel like kind of like smaller PTs, basically. Right. Yeah. The other ones feel like, and when we say that, that's shorthand for like. PT's Pub is a chain, the dominant chain of bars in Las Vegas. I that always are, forget that they're not all over the country. <laughs> they're yeah, yeah. They're, they're basically like if, for if you can imagine like an Applebee's with gaming, like <laughs> yeah. in the bar. That's what it is. It's like the food is good, like it's good food, and the beers are reasonably priced. Everything's fine, mm-hmm. and it's just like boring it's like very boring yeah and everybody has their pts that they love and uh you and i had several but pts mm-hmm. do not equate to this this is not pts pub. right what well, well, the the roaring 20s is not a pts pub right how about this one dave how about if we dip into like where i just describe generally where they were because i don't remember the name <laughs> okay i'll see if i can how about that, that? <laughs> and then you okay so you used to live at one point off of Warm Springs, and there was a bar that we would occasionally walk to across the street from where you lived. <laughs> That's What's, really you, you remember the name of that place? Oh, my God. I'm going to try to look it up. Continue to describe it, and I'm going to try to look up. Okay. Yeah. So Dave lived on, uh, yeah, like a, a street that was just off of Warm Springs in the like kind of the area where Las Vegas becomes Henderson, and it's just this sort of like suburban wasteland. And... Uh, it was not close, this bar. We would walk in the freezing-ass cold sometimes if our cars would break down. This I was found at the it. one time. I found it. <laughs> this was at the time when, like, you, Dave always had the reliable car, and I never did. And But there was a period of time where his car was breaking down, the Ultima. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so what, what was it called, Dave? It was called Chris's Place. Chris's place. Yes. Chris's place was Roaring Twenties. Am I uh, that that track? Does that track or yeah? No, that's a really good one. That is a great one. And yeah. How about this one? I couldn't tell you what it looks like on the inside, but I think it was fairly similar. Yeah, because we usually couldn't see when we would get get there. We couldn't even like see straight. Uh, how about this one, Dave? Again, just describing in Henderson, in what's colloquially called green valley part of henderson Mm -hmm. there's uh this part where everybody makes a joke that there's like the intersection of sunset and sunset Mm -hmm. you get to one part of sunset and you make a right and you're heading towards this flashy mall called the galleria mall right before you get there there's a, a bar on the right called thirst busters but forget about that if you made a left, oh. there was a bar that would be on the right-hand side that we spent many hours in. There was one pool table. Uh, we, we would hang out there with the uh, inimitable Johnny Rubs yes, and uh, spend many, many hours at that place. And there were a lot of local, colorful characters at that place. And another one where the name escapes me, you might it might not even be standing anymore. You may not be able to find that place anymore. But that was another uh, spot, as it were. 
Wow. I cannot remember the name of that place. I need to figure this out. I'm, I'm Just gonna... north of Sunset and Sunset. There was a uh, shopping center with like a um, Albertsons, I suppose, or maybe a Smith's. I don't think this was the name back then, but it's called Lucky Joe's Saloon. I don't think that yeah, was the not... name. Yeah, but this is it. Yeah, it was though. called something else. It okay. was called something else back then. Wow. I, God, I wonder what that was called. I can't remember. Man. It was called something ridiculous. Yeah, I, I remember. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I'll throw into the mix here uh, Money Play. Dreamers. What about Dreamers? <laughs> dreamers, too. Yeah. Dreamers. Dreamers. Oh, money plays. Okay. Yeah. Money plays. Now you're in now you're in our wheelhouse. Okay. The things that we've been naming so far have been fringe things. Yes. Dream um dreamers. Uh money plays is core narrative for yeah. us. Like you can place many, many key moments of our lives at money plays. Absolutely. I probably only spent about 30% of my time at Money Plays with you. I went on to Money Plays with many other characters in my and, life. That was a solo power. That probably. was a very I spent I spent maybe a twelve hour period with demise there one night. Oh yeah, like we got there at like six o'clock on a Valentine's Day. We we hung out at Money Place from six o'clock until six in the morning. I think one night. Yeah, on one Valentine's Day night. Yeah, Money Place. Money Place is a good place, and I unfortunately think it recently closed. Uh, from what I heard. Oh, that's that's a real gut punch. Yeah, but that's I, a tough one. I think it made it all the way to COVID though. I think it closed like this past year. You know, I think it's one of the things that went under. Oh man, that's yeah. rough. What else you got? Come on, let's an, throw another some more around. Another one, probably off ramp lounge. You remember off ramp lounge? No, where was that? Off ramp lounge was very rare. It was on the east side of town. Anybody that knew us knew that we were not. I mean, a far east side of town. We we were not east side guys. We weren't hanging out on the east side. It was where you would exit off of, uh, what is that, Windy, like the 93 slash 95 or whatever. Okay. And near Nellis. Oh. Near like Nellis. God, we only went out that way pretty rare that we went out Very that way. rarely. Yeah. Usually it was just like as a goof. Yeah. And uh, yeah, off ramp lounge. That might not even exist anymore. I wonder, you think that survived COVID? What do you think? <laughs> off ramp lounge las vegas <sighs> closed yeah 3935 east charleston charleston yeah it is off 95 was, in charleston yep i do remember off the 95 in charleston there's like a whole early even maybe before you and i were hanging out together very much when we were teenagers sneaking into places um like sneakers how about sneakers? Okay, yeah. Then, See, now I never really got to go to sneakers because I didn't have a fake ID. So yeah, yeah, you needed the fake ID. Mm -hmm. And then the one night at sneakers, I was there with um with Darren, mm -hmm. who's a friend of ours. A lot of shout outs in this episode. Yeah, a lot of shout outs. I mean, you gotta you gotta have shout outs in this kind of content. Yeah. So Darren and I walk up, same bouncer that's always there, checks our fake IDs, lets us in. We get drunk, we leave, wake up the next morning. On the news, that bouncer went into a Publix off of West Flamingo and gunned down like 10 people. And it was like one of the first like mass shootings caught on tape because this is pre, this is cell phone era, but it's before you had cameras on your cell phone. But this was on uh, like a Smith's in a Smith's or something like that. Do you remember this shit or no? I don't know. The remember. guy that like walked around with the shotgun and like people were hiding underneath the produce and oh shit like that. Oh my God. That's. You don't remember this story? It was like a fucking enormous national story for, for weeks. And then they found that he had rented a room in, uh, 
in in somewhere downtown. He was a local, but he rented a, a hotel room and tied up a sex worker and like left her there and didn't kill her, but like left her in the room tied up. And uh, she was saved, fortunately. I mean, like she was um, rescued. I guess they found her. But yeah. Well, that's the show, <laughs> so, folks. <laughs> so there's a story. <laughs> Michael Martin for Oscars. <laughs> uh-huh.